day by day and with each passing moment strength I find to meet my trials here trusting in my father's wise bestowment I've no cause for worry or for fear he whose heart is kind beyond no measure gives unto day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me, with a special mercy for each hour. bear and cheer me, he whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he made. As thy days the strength shall be in measure, this the pledge to me Then in every tribulation, so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation, offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take from a father's hand one by one the days of moments fleeting till I reach the promised land let's ask God to guide in this hour as we hear the proclamation of God's truth father God Thank you that you are the one who has provided our salvation. As we review and learned last night, it is something that originated in the mind of God, the triune God in eternity past, and yet we cannot do anything to gain it. You have already chosen to do all that is necessary in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his shedding his precious blood for us and his physical death and burial and the resurrection of our Savior has been accomplished for us and that we just must receive it through faith, accept it as a gift from you. And Father, I thank you that many of us As far as I know, all of us in this room have done that. And yet you know the hearts of each one. If there's someone here who isn't sure, Father, I ask you that they would make sure it's the most important decision they can make. It's an eternal decision. Heavenly Father, I ask you that you would guide Dr. Schrader in a little while as he preaches and as we consider the truths of your word, that we would all grow and that we would all learn and that we would all apply it to our lives and walk with our Savior Jesus Christ as we ought to 
every day. Father, I thank you for each one who is here and the fellowship we can have together. And I look forward to the rest of this evening asking for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I will go ahead and ask Joshua to lead us in Rejoice in the Lord 680. Okay, I want to talk about tonight the security of salvation, and I want to read first of all from Romans chapter 8, those verses. There are dozens and dozens of verses in our New Testament that speak about security of salvation. 
But probably the capstone of them all is Romans chapter 8. I don't think there's any greater literature anywhere than the first eight chapters of Romans. Just what goes on in those chapters and what we learn about ourselves, about sin, salvation, and then finally, security of our salvation. So let me read just from verse 35, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally no other created thing. And the only non-created thing is God himself. And since God isn't going to separate us, no other created thing can. The difference between, of course, eternal security and assurance, which I'll be speaking on tomorrow morning, is that you are eternally secure if you're saved and have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you feel like it or not. The difference is that with assurance, we can be, as Pastor Matt said, we can be truly saved and have doubts about it, and at times not feel that we are for various reasons. Our emotions come and go, and they change. But security is up to God. It's his business, not ours, you might say. So we're talking about security tonight, and we'll talk about assurance in the morning. There are really only two views about eternal security. Either you can lose it or you can't lose it. There, there really isn't any in-between view about that. And we'll see in a few minutes that those who believe you can lose your salvation believe either you can lose it because of sin, that you sin and you don't repent of that, and so your salvation goes away, and others believe you can give it back. You received it by, by free will, you can give it back by free will if you want. But the only other view is that, no, you can't lose it. You couldn't give it back if you wanted to, not if you have it, and you wouldn't want to if you truly have it. And if, if you have security, there are two words that are usually used to describe it. One is perseverance, uh, that P in the tulip, if you know what I mean. But perseverance emphasizes the fact that a true believer will grow in his or her Christian life throughout your life. There are ups and downs all the way in that uphill uh, progress, but you will grow in your Christian life. You will persevere. Others like the word preservation because preservation emphasizes the fact that God preserves us. He keeps us. And so uh, that's a little more emphasis on what God does, even though we stumble along the way. The reality of all of this is the fact that Christians aren't perfect, are we? And so we get saved, uh, we're still human beings, we still have that old nature, and by the way, I believe we uh, have two natures then when we're saved. We keep that old nature that we had from Adam, and we'll have that until the day we die, uh, 
and resurrection only will do away with that. But we have a new nature, and so sometimes we give in to that flesh, to the old nature, and we find ourselves doing, we backsliding, uh, we sin, and do things that cause us to doubt, cause others to look at us and, and wonder about us, and sometimes uh, that backsliding can be pretty serious, can't it? I mean, after all, David committed adultery and then murder, and yet did not lose his salvation. He lost the joy of it, he said, but not his salvation. So we sin, and we can be carnal. Uh, Carnality uh, is that sin in the Christian life, and we can be like that. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tonight. But we aren't, we weren't saved by our good works. We're not kept secure by our good works, uh, even though we don't always feel like we're saved. There's an old saying that goes like this. The saints may be happier in heaven, but they are no more secure than true believers still in this world. They've gone ahead of us and they're already there and we're on our way. So if you have, if you have a handout tonight, uh, you see, uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Sometimes I quote myself. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's in the book. Okay. So, uh, four questions I want to ask tonight about this. What do we mean when we say eternal security of salvation? Let me take those three words in reverse order. Last night I spoke about salvation, and so we have covered that subject, but when we speak about salvation, the Savior, uh, and what it is to be saved, we're actually using this almost the same Greek word in all three expressions. Acts 4.12 says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, salvation and saved. Philippians 3.20 says, Our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were looking up in a doctrine or theology book, uh, and you wanted to study eternal security, assurance, or salvation, you would find the doctrine of soteriology. It's a funny-sounding word, but that word soteriology comes from a root word, soter means savior, sozo is the verb which means to be saved, and soteria is the word for salvation. So our savior is the soter, and so when we study soteriology, we're studying all those words, salvation, being saved, the savior, and all of that. So we've looked at salvation And when we talk about being saved, we're asking ourselves, okay, I got saved, I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me, Uh, am I saved forever? Did I lose it somewhere along the line? And we're going to say, no, of course you did not. So what do we mean by security? You know, there's an interesting verse uh, in Acts 17.9, I think on your sheet you have these references. You remember when Paul went to Thessalonica, and he was there for three weeks as all, three Sabbath days. And he was run out of town. 
You know, if you if you had a missionary, you were supporting a missionary, and every town he went to, he got run out of town or thrown in jail. You might be a little <laughs> concerned about your missionary, but uh, that was what the apostle Paul did everywhere he went. So he's running. He was in he was in jail in Philippi. He came down to Thessalonica. He's run out of town there. Goes down to Berea, and then he has to leave there. So that's just Paul's life. Well. They ran him out of town, and then Jason, who lived there, uh, they arrested and said, Paul, if you come back to town, we're going to take it out on Jason. And it says in Acts 17:9, when they had taken security of Jason, then they let the others go. Security of Jason. And that word security, at least in our English and all, means that he was arrested that he was kept secure, that he couldn't get out. And so security is that idea that we know of as jail or prison, and yet he may have been under house arrest. But he was, he was arrested. And in a way, our security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be arrested. Now, in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, that same word that is translated security is this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. That's the same word. Sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So security is sufficiency. Our sufficiency is of God. Your salvation is sufficient. God is sufficient to keep you secure. So that's how we define security. In other words, folks, it's, it's not your job to keep you saved. If you can't work for your salvation, how can you work to lose your salvation? And to me, legalism, and by the way, I, we, we use legalism. I, I, call, I say that we have Christian swear words <laughs> we, we throw around these days, and legalism is one of them. But legalism technically is... Someone who does work to get saved or believes that by other works you can be unsaved. That would be legalism. The Jews believed they had to keep the law to be saved. Law means legal. You had to keep the law to be saved. Legalism is not just that I agree or disagree with your standards as a Christian. That, that has to do with sanctification, not, not legalism. And so, those who believe you can lose your salvation really are legalists. and They have worked for their salvation. They believe by some kind of action you can lose your salvation. But our sufficiency is of God. It's not, it's not our business. It's God's business. I want to speak for a minute about the word eternal, though. Of course, we started in John 3.16 yesterday. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. In a book that I just read by that had a lot of Arminian thinkers in it, that is, uh, some people were writing articles about why they believe you can lose your salvation. And when... when uh, uh, the objection was made to them, well, what about what the Bible says that, it, that we have eternal life, we have everlasting life. I also put there, I think, Titus 1.12, in hope of eternal life. They come from the same word. It's interesting that they said, well, everlasting is just a type of life that we have. 
and it just describes the type of life. I, I suppose it's kind of like if uh, if you have a long bed pickup truck, that's a type of a truck, you know, not a short bed, you might have a long bed. Well, you bought one, you can take it back if you want, or you can sell it if you want. Uh, but is everlasting a type? No, I think in the Bible we have to understand that everlasting or eternal is a length of time. It's for how long you have this everlasting life. So if I say you have a lifetime warranty, that's supposed to mean from now for the rest of your life. And if you have everlasting life, it means from now to everlasting, from now to eternity. The word eternal sounds like this, ionios. It's ionios is the word for eternal. And if you looked at it literally, it would say into the eternity. You have life into the eternity. Well, here's an interesting verse in, uh, if you, I don't know if you have this referenced, uh, Revelation 22, 4 and 5. There, we're talking about the very last chapter of the Bible, and we're talking about when we get to that uh, eternal city, the new Jerusalem, here's the way it describes it. They shall see his face, his name shall be in their foreheads, there shall be no night there, and no need uh, they they uh, have no need of candle, nor neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. And then look at this, and they shall reign forever and ever, or literally into the eternity of the eternities. So that word is used twice together, Ionios, Iona, the Ion, actually. So into the eternity of the eternities. Here we are at the very end, and that's the life we have ahead of us. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to show you a video, and I'm going to include John Newton in that video. These are trips that we did in England of uh, church history and so forth. And uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, of course, and we sing uh, Amazing Grace. When we've been there, what? 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no what? Less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Well, is that true? Don't we have 10,000 fewer days than we had when we started? That's his point, isn't it? If it's eternity, if it's eternal, take away a trillion, you know, think like our government thinks and take away a trillion dollars. What difference does that make, you know? Take away 10,000, and as far as eternity is counted, we still have the same number of days. It never stops, does it? And so into the eternity of the eternities, and I think that's the way Newton was expressing it in his song. And, you know, sometimes with the song we say, well, let's say 10 million years. Okay, sing 10 million years, it won't make any difference. Sing 10 years. Uh, it's the same thing. You can't take away from eternity. In other words, it's not a type of life that we have. It's the length of life that we have. So that's what we mean by the eternal security of our salvation. What's the basis of it? 
many things, many verses. As I said, I, I could take a lot of time to try to read you 20 verses, 30 verses, 50 verses tonight that speak of uh, our security and the eternal life that we have. But let me just point out three things about all of those. Number one, there are verses that that express God the Father. There are verses that express God the Son and those that talk about God the Holy Spirit, how that they secure us. In other words, our security or our salvation is as secure as the Trinity itself, as the three persons of the Trinity. Again, God is one, but he expresses himself in three persons, as a Father, as a Son, as a Holy Spirit. And so God the Father... Uh, we're told, for example, in 1 Peter 1, 5, who are, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So the power of God keeps us, and we got into this through our faith, and it will be revealed when? Not now, not tomorrow, not the day you sin, but in the last time this will be revealed. Do you know anything more powerful than God? What did we read here in, in Romans chapter 8? Can anything separate us from the love of God? Nothing can. As a matter of fact, uh, any other created thing, as I said. God is the only uncreated thing. So we are kept by God. There's a verse in the end of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, that says that we are, we are saved by the blood of the everlasting covenant. God has made a covenant with us. And when we come under his blood, then we are part of that covenant. When I speak to the pastors next week, I'm going to talk about marriage covenants. And marriage covenants are covenants because they're not supposed to be broken. Uh, and so uh, God has covenants. He has covenants with Israel. He has covenants with people. Does, has God ever broken a covenant? No. God cannot break covenants because God cannot lie. When he makes a promise, he makes a covenant, uh, he doesn't lie. And so we have this everlasting covenant. Or we could talk about the love of God, like in, in Romans uh, 8, which we have, the faithfulness of God. You remember these verses about the hand of God and the hand of Jesus Christ. So here in John ten twenty nine, my father, Jesus says, which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And in the verse before, he said, out of my hand. So, you know, we are in the hand of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is in the hand of God, so to speak. We kind of have a double grip on ourselves. Uh, the Lord is, is in the Father, and, and we are in him, and he is in the Father. And so no one can pluck us out of God's hand. And the same is, is said of the Son here also. We can't be plucked out of his hand. Jesus Christ is our advocate, right? He makes intercession for us. How many times in the New Testament do we have this idea that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous? He's a lawyer. He stands at the right hand of God who is the judge. And every time we sin, he says, put that on my account. I've covered that already. Uh, that one is mine. And every time we sin... Jesus Christ is making that intercession for us. God the Son making that intercession to God the Father. 
Can anything separate us from that? Have they ever lost a case? Have, can, can anything be done against our advocate, our lawyer, the Lord Jesus Christ? And what about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us too? And then we have, of course, the Holy Spirit. And so many things said, as a matter of fact, maybe more things said about the Holy Spirit keeping us uh, than either God the Father and God the Son. Because in this age in which we live, the Holy Spirit lives within you. He has baptized you into the body of Christ. He has regenerated you. He has saved you. And so he is inside you. I give reference in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 to these two words with that Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit sealed us. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's a seven-sealed book, do you remember? And that seven-sealed book is a reference to the way they used to do things in the Old Testament when uh, deeds and everything were, were uh, bought and sold, and they were sealed with seven seals. And the only person that could open that seal was the one to whom that land belonged. And so no one else had the right to open the seal. So we, we have in the book of Revelation this seven-sealed book, and John sees that, and uh, he would like it to be opened, and there's no one there to open it. And he weeps because there's no one there. But what we find is the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus is both the Lamb and the Lion, he goes to the Father and takes the book out of the hand of the Father and begins to open the seals. Why? Because the land is his. The earth is his. And the book of Revelation will be how he reclaims the land, the earth, which is his. So the idea that we are sealed uh, comes from that idea. And, of course, those seals on those scrolls uh, tied the scroll together and so forth. So we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then it says in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. So he's the down payment. He's the earnest money. So God bought you with his with the blood of his son and then he made a down payment on you because he intends to come back and take his purchased possession. And so the Holy Spirit is put within you uh, as a down payment, it says, until the redemption of the purchase possession. Is he going to put a down payment on you and not come back and take the rest of it? <laughs> and not come back and take the rest of what belongs to him? If you've ever put a down payment on something, you need to go back later and get the real thing. Uh, because it belongs to you. So the Holy Spirit is our seal. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. Now, the point in just mentioning these three folks is this. Any one of them, actually all three of them, would have to fail for your salvation to fail. Because all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are at work doing this work to secure your salvation. It's not you that undoes it. They would have to fail. They would have to not do what they do in order for you to lose your salvation. I want to make a second point there about the, what is the basis of this. When I say revelation, what I mean by that is God has told us. The scripture is God's revelation. It is what we have today. Uh, he doesn't speak to us in visions and prophecies any longer. He did, of course. Those miracles and those revelations in the Bible are true. 
but we now have the word of God. It's his completed revelation. And so if God says these things to us, we have to believe them. And God says often that we are secure. Now, I use one such reference. And as I said, you could use many. But in, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, is that chapter on marriage. Well, it in, the chapter ends up speaking about the husband and the wife and the, the husband loving the wife. And so in verse 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives. And how are we to do that? Even as... Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might, notice these words, sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. Finally, on that day when we stand before him, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So, first of all, he sanctified us. Now, you remember that sanctification has three parts. There are three kinds of sanctification mentioned in the Word of God. There is that positional sanctification. When you got saved, the Bible says you became sanctified. That is, you are washed, you are His, you are seen as Christ's righteousness, as we saw last night. But there's a progressive sanctification, too. And in that progressive sanctification, again, is that upward trajectory of kind of an up-and-down path, but we're continually going upward. That is our progressive sanctification. And He sanctifies us through all of that. And then there will be a permanent sanctification when we stand before him, and as it's described here, without spot or without wrinkle. He's cleansed us then through this process, but I want you to notice the word present, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. That word is used a few times in the New Testament to describe our salvation. What is, what is it describing? It's describing when the bride is presented to the groom. And he wants his church, which is his bride, to be presented to himself at the marriage altar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say next week when I talk to the pastor, so you guys are going to be there, hear this twice, but you know, I always laugh and say, you know, men, somewhere we have kind of lost this thing about marriage because I, I mean that... Uh, you know, it used to be in Oriental weddings that the groom got all the uh, all the glory, and, and the wife was prepared for him. You know, right? And when we marry the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, he, he'll get all the glory. We've lost that because in our weddings, you know, it's the it's the bride who comes in, and everyone stands and turns around and looks at the bride, and she gets all the glory, and the the groom is in the broom closet over here. And somebody has to go kick on the door and he stumbles out and then there are three or four of them. You don't even know which one he is, you know. So we need to get back to, you know, the oriental type of wedding. But what is being spoken of here is the bride is being prepared for the wedding. You and I are the bride of Christ. We are engaged, if you, if you uh, want to say we're the fiance right now. When he asked us to marry him, we said yes. When he asked us to become his bride, part of the bride of Christ, you said yes. 
and you received him as your savior. And we have this custom in, you know, in, in, in our earthly weddings uh, that we get engaged. Now, in the, the, the betrothal period in the, uh, uh, in the New Testament was that uh, promise uh, that they would be married. We do that in our engagements, and ours aren't quite as secure as theirs were. But does a, does a groom then break the promise that he made to that girl that he would marry her? Well, not a good man doesn't. Uh, not somebody who intends on making a covenant. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, has made that promise to us that he will marry us when he takes us to himself. And so we have that promise from him. And so that word present is that we will be presented to him, this glorious bride, that we will be his bride throughout eternity. The the husband and the wife. As Christ also loved the church, he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he can present it to himself. And we haven't been presented to him yet. We will be presented to him at the rapture, uh, when the, the rapture takes place and the resurrection of saints, and we all go to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, the first thing will happen is uh, we will be at that wedding, which is at the Father's house in heaven. So we are, we are presented. Now, I'm just saying that that's just one passage. And there are many in the New Testament that speak about this, this security that we have in him. And then we have experience. And experience I, I emphasized also last night, and that is, uh, you know that you came to the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask him to save you. And if the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, I don't know how many times I've said to somebody that, uh, you know, doubted or I wanted to give them uh, assurance after they got saved. Look at this promise. If you call on the Lord, then he will save you. Did you do that? And if you did, then he saved you. It's a promise that he makes to you. Now, we read Romans ten fourteen last night. How then shall they call on him and whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him and whom they have not heard? And we, it goes on, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? That idea of experience is expressed in these three words. And, th- and there are, if you allow me, there are these three, there were actually Latin words. And the hearing, the knowing, is the word notitia. No one can be saved without hearing the word. Somebody has, somebody has to present the gospel to a person. That's the urgency of the missions. That's the urgency of soul winning. It's the urgency of sending people all around the world. Somebody has to hear it. Hearing, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Then there was the word ascensus. And that is to believe. When you hear about Jesus Christ, that he is God in the flesh, that he was virgin born, that he lived a sinless life, and then he, then he was crucified, but he rose bodily from the grave, he ascended back to the heaven, you have to decide, do you believe that? Do you give assent to it? So notitia is one thing, a census is the other, and the third word is fiducia. 
And we like that word fiducia, the Marines like it, you know, semper fi, which means always faithful. So fiducia means the faith, the reaching out and taking it. I heard it, I gave assent to the truth of it, and then I reached out and took it. I took it by faith. I have in a track, and as a matter of fact, I think this is in the booklet also, an illustration of a man on an island. Let's let's say this man is on an island, and uh, the tide is going to come up, and the island is going to be flooded, and he's going to he's going to die, but he doesn't know it, and he's sitting on the other this side of the island, and he doesn't know that there's a boat tied on that side of the island. The first thing he needs to know is that he's in danger, and the other thing that he needs to know is that there is a boat tied up on the other side of the island. Now, if he never searches and he never hears that he'll die where he is but if he finds out there's a boat on the other side of the island the knowledge of it he goes around the island and he looks at that boat and now he has to look at it and say is it worthy can I get in it would it even hold me up and so he has to investigate that boat he has to look at it and see if it's a good boat in other words a census he has to give a cent to that boat, uh, whether it will hold him or not. Well, let's say he decides it's a good boat. It would take me off this island. It will save, it will save my life. And so what he does is he sits down on the island looking at the boat saying, that's a good boat. It will save me. And he stays there. And what happens? He loses his life. Because he needs one, he needs to do one more thing, doesn't he? And what's that other thing he needs to do? He needs to get in the boat. He needs to commit himself to the boat. That's the fiducia. You can search out Jesus Christ. You can know that he would save you. You can believe all about him and not get in, not commit yourself to it. So that salvation experience is when you got in the boat. And then they have a fourth word, uh, which means that you're secure in the boat. So that now, I think it's the word confesses, which means now I can confess that I am saved. I'm in the boat, the island's underwater, but I'm alive. And so we live to confess it. So you have to get in the boat. And you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have done that. You have asked him to save you. You have called upon the Lord. He has saved you. You've gotten in the boat, and you're in the boat, and you're saved. All right, so what do we mean by it, and what is the basis of it? And let me go thirdly to a few words about why this is misunderstood. And I say, first of all, because there are confusing voices, 1 Timothy 1, 4, Paul says to young Timothy, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. To have assurance is godly edifying. There are too many questions out there by people who search these things and come up with odd answers. He said to Titus that they, these people even subvert whole houses. So let me just point out a few things that I think uh, we have to be careful for in this. And, and one is Arminianism. 
that one is, means that those are people who believe you can lose your salvation, as I said at the beginning. And it's kind of interesting that they believe that by sin you can lose it, and there are these reformed Arminians who believe that you can give it back. You came in this door, you can go back out that door. You, you believe by free will, you can give it back by free will. But again, as I said uh, earlier, that's to believe that you can work for your salvation. I'll come back to that word Arminian. It comes from a man's name, James Arminius, who lived just after the, uh, the time of, of uh, John Calvin. So we have Arminianism and we have Calvinism coming from two different men's names. There's a movement today called Free Grace. Sounds good. I've met some of these people. I've read their books too. But Free Grace uh, is a movement that basically says it doesn't take repentance to be saved and you just ask the Lord to save you and when you do, nothing else uh, is required of you. You don't need to do uh, any good works. You don't need to be baptized. And as a matter of fact, they believe you can't even uh, walk away from the faith if you wanted to. No one can can say that uh, that uh, I, I never believed I'm not saved. And they say, you're still saved no matter what. Free grace is kind of free to do whatever you want to do in this life after you get saved. Is that perseverance? Is that even preservation to say that now that you're saved, uh, it doesn't make any difference what you do? No, the Bible says that if you're truly born again, you will follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You will make him the Lord of your life and you'll follow him. A third thing is lordship, which I think takes us to the other end. And that is, to me, you have to understand that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And if you're a believer, he, he is your Lord, Jesus Christ. But this lordship view is kind of like we'll put a bunch of hurdles in front of people that they have to jump over. And if they can jump over these hurdles, then they can be saved. And so uh, you have to give up this in your life. You have to make sure you don't do this anymore. You have to agree that you'll never do this. And if you can jump over these hurdles, now you can be saved. In other words, it's kind of like making Jesus Lord before you get saved. And if you're willing to do that, then you can get saved. To me, then, that goes back to good works for salvation, or at least to prepare yourself for salvation. Lordship's been around a, a long time, and I think we have to be careful about it. So with all of these kind of verses, and, and by the way, lordship basically then is a way to say that uh, I, I heard one man say, I'm not, so, I'm not so concerned about getting people saved. I'm concerned about keeping people from thinking they are saved. In other words, uh, he lived in Southern California, and out there there's a lot of wild kind of living. And uh, he thought, well, if uh, you make it hard to accept Jesus as your Savior, then you eliminate all of those people who uh, don't really want to be saved. And only the ones who really want to be saved will get saved. What a way to think, isn't huh? No, salvation is by faith. And it's coming to him with your sins and saying, I need to be forgiven of these. Would you forgive me? And then what you'll find is the grace to live the Christian life.
Now, there are also, secondly, confusing passages in the Bible. And these confusing passages sometimes cause people to think, well, maybe these are teaching that we will, uh, that we could lose our salvation. There are those if passages. For example, Hebrews, uh, in twice in chapter three, uh, verse seven says, wherefore, uh, the Holy Ghost says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. And in verse 14, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. So you are a believer in Christ if you live steadfast unto the end. So how are we to take that? It seems like a real contradiction to these security verses. Is it saying that if somewhere along the line you stumble, like the Arminians say, you stumble and sin, then you haven't been steadfast to the end, and therefore you're not saved? Well, since the Bible can't contradict itself, and the security passages are clear, we have to understand this in a different way. And what it's, what it's saying is, to the believer, uh, you know if you are saved because your life has been changed. You know you are saved because you see the steadfastness of your life after you got saved. Not that you always are perfect, as we said. Uh, that's not always the case. But you know that you see your life going upward. You see your life, you see old things passed away and all things are become new. And so when the Bible uses these if passages, uh, it's simply speaking about assurance saying you know that you're saved if you if your life has changed. And that's the way we need to take those. There are some interesting verses in Hebrews, and I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 6, uh, turning back over there in your Bible. And in the book of Hebrews, there are five warning passages. And in these warning passages... They are, they are telling believers, the writer is telling believers that don't turn away from the faith. You're about to hear, uh, the gospel. Don't turn away from it. And so Arminians would say, well, uh, don't, you've got it. Don't walk away from it. But what Paul is saying here is that there were Jews who believed that maybe they're trying to make up their mind whether to be saved. And here is the temple over here with all of its bells and whistles and its beautiful worship and the priesthood and the candles and the statues and everything that they have. I think I'll go back over there and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, stay with these people here that are preaching salvation by faith alone. Don't go back and try to be saved by the Mosaic law. And so we have five warning passages to these people uh, to keep them from uh, going back. The hardest one to figure is Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, for example. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come if they fall away, again, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. You can see why a passage like that would be very confusing uh, to some people, and some people would take that that you're not. Now, to be fair, I know that there are good eternal security people who look at this as these are Christians 
who can uh, sin in their life. I take it rather like this. The other four warning passages are always warning Jews to go on to salvation and don't go back to their old Jewish life. And I believe the same thing is happening here in chapter 6. So in those words in verse 4, still speaking of what happens when somebody is convicted of their sin. I don't believe that that shows that they are saved. They were once enlightened. What does that mean? They've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. They have tasted of that heavenly gift. Maybe they've been in the, in the fellowship of believers. Maybe they have, have, uh, felt that, that compulsion of the Holy Spirit to, to, uh, be saved. As a matter of fact, the next phrase, they've made, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now I realize that that seems, uh, like it's saying that, uh, the Holy Spirit has come in and lives inside them. I think it means that the Holy Spirit has come along beside them for a while and convicted them. Maybe they've even been in church. Maybe they've, they've seen the Christian life for a while, and then they say, but I'm not accepting that. That partaker there, the word partakers of the Holy Spirit, is the word partner. There's a story in the Gospels about, remember, the disciples threw out their net on the other side of the boat and there was such a, a large amount of fish in the net that they couldn't bring it in the boat and so the other uh, men in the other boat came over and it said their partners came and helped them put the net in the boat. They came alongside them and were partners with them for a while to help them in their fishing. And I think that that's what it's saying. The, the Holy Spirit is for a while is a partner with a sinner partner with him to convict him to bring him to Christ that may take years it might take months it might take weeks it might take days but there's this time when they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit they taste the word of God anyway they realize of the about the powers of the world to come but what do they do they fall away they say I'm not I'm not going to do that and there have been a number of people who have done that, come to that point where they could be saved, but they walk away from it. And what he's saying is, if that takes place, it's harder for that person to come back to real salvation than any other type of person. They, they have heard it all, they've examined it all, and they've said, I don't want it, and they walk away. There are alarming statistics out right now about how many people are walking away from church. How many kids have grown up in church and get to the teenage years and walk away and never come back. And I think uh, this is true of, of that. If you can walk away from it and never come back, were you ever saved in the first place? Is there any kind of perseverance? Is there any kind of growth uh, at all? No. And that's why it's so hard for them to come back. And it's alarming to see uh, people uh, come around church that long who could be saved and then walk away. So these kinds of of, uh, warning passages in uh, in Hebrews is important. And so in, uh, in chapter 10, verse 29, is the last of the warning passages when verse 28 says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy unto two or three witnesses, how much sorer punishment 
Suppose ye shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and done despite, or despite to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of grace. A person like that could have been saved. A person like that heard things. A person like that felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and walked away from it. How much worse punishment is coming upon a person like that than a person that's never heard is what Paul's saying. So there are these warning passages, especially in Hebrews, that we have to realize. And thirdly, under the confusing passages, is the fact that there are those apostate verses that show that some people were never saved. First John 2.19 is a classic verse about this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. This doesn't mean, by the way, every time somebody gets mad and leaves the church or somebody, you know, you have a friend that isn't going to speak to you anymore. This, this is a person who comes in, inspects the Christianity, looks around, maybe attends church for a long time, and then says, this is not for me. They went out from us because they were not of us. They were not Christians like we are. And so we call that an apostate. Now, there are two great chapters about this, and that is Second Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude. Those two passages, those two chapters, speak about this kind of person who they sneak in and they're not truly saved, they disrupt everything, and, uh, and they go away. So, you have confusing voices and confusing passages. And just briefly, I'll say again, there are those confusing doctrines, but I want to major on the second one. Justification become, can become confusing uh, just because he justified us and we wonder what it means to be justified. I want to remind you of Romans 8.30, and I don't know if you can turn back there with me real quick. I didn't put that on your sheet. But Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called he justified, and whom he justified he glorified. That's the same to say, if you are justified you are also glorified. You can't stop the glorification if you've been justified. It will happen. Just as much as if justification can be confusing, but sanctification can be. So now I want, I do want you to turn with me to First Thessalonians, or First Corinthians chapter three, and I want you to see that a believer can be carnal. Now, sanctification is that, that doctrine that confuses a lot of people because it means that you as a Christian sin and you have sin in your life. And if that's true, how can you still be a Christian? We call that carnality. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. I, brethren, could notice brethren, he's speaking to Christians, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but unto carnal, even like or as babes in Christ. 
Now stop and think about that. I wanted to talk to you as spiritually mature people. But there's sin in the camp. And because of the sin in your heart, you have become carnal. And so I have to speak to you as I'd speak to a small child. I can't speak to you as spiritually mature people anymore. Carnal, by the way, is the opposite of spiritual. You could say spiritual and fleshly. The word carnal is the word flesh, as a matter of fact. So uh, carnal is to be fleshly. And then he says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. Hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are you now able. Uh, a person that's carnal and living, a Christian that's living in sin, doesn't want to read the word of God. It convicts them. They don't want to be around church because that convicts them. And they know that they're living in sin. They know that they're practicing a sin. And it burdens them. And uh, they don't know what to do about it, but they don't want to feel uncomfortable about it. And so they... All you can do almost is feed them with milk because they don't want to hear, they don't want to chew on the meat. They don't want to hear anything deeper than that. For you are yet carnal, fleshly that is. Whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal? And notice, walk as men. You walk as an unbeliever. Tomorrow in one of my messages, I want to show you the difference between this, but, the, but just let me say this much. When you look at a carnal person, you can't tell whether you're looking at a saved person or a lost person. Because a lost person is carnal also. A lost person does carnal things. But a Christian can do carnal things. And so if you're looking at this person who's doing carnal things, you can't say that's a, that's a believer. You don't know that. You walk as men, that is, as lost men. And so Paul is saying, get rid of that sin, don't walk carnally, and then we can, then we can teach the word of God, then we can have fellowship together. So sanctification in the Christian life becomes a confusing doctrine to a lot of people. And so some people believe you can lose your salvation that way. Evangelicalism, I've talked a lot about. We are evangelicals. We believe that you once you're saved, you're always saved, and you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And let me say this. Uh, uh, Brother Matt gave his testimony about making a profession of faith that wasn't real and being saved a few years later. I have the same testimony. I want to talk to you about that a little bit tomorrow. But there's no magic formula to getting saved, is there? You don't just say, say these words, and then you'll have eternal life. We have to be careful, especially with little children, because sometimes with little children, we're leading them to Christ. But they can truly be saved, but you can't just say say these words and magically it happens it has to be in the heart you have to see it in them and then you have to let them express their need and want for salvation we have to do that with adults too sometimes our soul winning ends up being just that and that is just say these words uh, repeat after me without even thinking about it and you'll be saved well if you really wanted to be saved and you had asked how to be saved then you might repeat such words, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake, and it would be real, and he would save you. 
But just saying it without the heart uh, doesn't mean that you're saved. Now let me, let me distinguish between Arminianism and Calvinism for a minute. James Arminius, well, John Calvin came first, and we get the name John Calvin. This was back right after the Reformation. And Calvin uh, had some pretty harsh doctrines, and uh, you, these days you can be a hyper-Calvinist, a moderate Calvinist, a three-point Calvinist, a two-point Calvinist, you know, a five-point Calvinist, whatever you want to be. And, and there are all views in between. But primarily... If, if you believe in eternal security, that once you're saved, you're always saved, you are a Calvinist to some degree. <laughs> that is, you believe in the doctrine of grace, that you're saved by grace and not by your works. Now, James Arminius came along, and he believed that you could lose your salvation. John Wesley was an Arminian, and the Wesleyans uh, always have believed uh, that you can lose your salvation. And uh, so the Methodist Church, though they have a lot of divisions in it, the primary ones believe you can lose your salvation. Uh, a lot of the Nazarene churches, Assembly of God churches and so forth, teach this. So if you believe you can lose your salvation, you're certainly not on the Calvinistic side, you're somewhere on the Arminian side. But there are lots of degrees of, degrees of Arminians, uh, as I said. And uh, some go way down here to believe that free will is such that even God doesn't know what you're going to do. Because <laughs> how, how could you have really free will if God knows what you're going to decide? So there's all kinds of degrees of Arminianism. So, I'm just since we're defining confusing things, if you believe in eternal security, you're on this side of that continental divide. And you're saved by grace. And the doctrines of salvation are important, but we could disagree over the degrees of Calvinism. We could disagree over election, predestination, and all that to some degree. But if you've accepted Christ as Savior and believe in the grace of God, you believe you're eternally secure, and you're going to be in heaven with all these people, and you'll get it straightened out later on. <laughs> but if you're on this side of that continental divide, it's miserable. You don't know whether you have it, whether you don't have it. You don't know whether you're still saved or you're lost and all of that confusing thing that goes with Arminianism. So that's the continental divide and we put ourselves on the side of eternal security and it puts us on that side of that. All right. Uh, let me quickly uh, finish with these things. We've said that there are three witnesses. How can, how can we know that we have eternal life? There are three witnesses. One is the scripture. The scripture says that you can know. Whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected, and hereby know we that we are in him. So when the scripture says you can have eternal life, believe it. The Spirit is in you. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He witnesses to you. He gives you that confidence and even convicts you of your sin when you sin. That's one way you know you're saved. It concerns you that you've been sinning. So you have thirdly a conscience then holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. So you have those three witnesses with you always. You have these kinds of promises, and there are many, but I, I point out these three. There's the word kept. 
if you look that up in your in your concordance or something, you'll find the word kept many times in the New Testament. And so in First Peter four or one verse four, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. You'll find that word kept often, and it means exactly what it says. You are kept. And God is going to complete in you what he began in you. Philippians 1, 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He started with you as a baby in Christ. He started with you as a brand new believer. You may have been an adult, but you were a brand new believer. And he started building you the way he wants to build you. And whatever God started, he will finish. And that's what Paul's saying in this verse. And you have the word established that I like. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. (laughs) This sanctification process is so that we will be ready for heaven. Now that sounds hard to do, but you weren't ready for heaven before you got saved. And the moment you got saved, you had a lot of stuff that needed to be put away. He's preparing you for heaven. When, when you're ready to step into heaven, you're already looking forward to it. There's nothing like seeing an older saint who knows that he and she or she are about to the end of their life and they're looking forward to going on. I have done, I think, around 130 funerals in my life. I guess people are dying to get into my church. But but, <laughs> but uh, I've, I've done about 130 funerals, and, and by far the great majority of them are great Christian people who get to the end and say, I'm ready to go. I want to go on. That's the Lord taking a life that started out as in nothing and bringing them to that place. And then, by the way, the Bema Seat of Christ will finish the rest of it. And the, th- the thing I'm looking forward to about the Bema Seat of Christ, the first thing that happens after our resurrection or rapture is the Bema Seat. And the reason I'm looking forward to that is it'll be the first time in my life that I'm right about everything. Because <laughs> the Lord's going to show me all of my faults and what didn't bring any rewards. And he's going to show me what is right and rewards for that. And for the first time, all of that old stuff will be shed. And for then we'll be ready, as this verse said, to see the Lord in true holiness and be presented to him. Now, I want to give you this last thought about three signatures. You see what that is? I was studying the book of life in the book of Revelation not long ago. Six times in the book of Revelation, the book of life, sometimes called the Lamb's book of life, is mentioned six times. Uh, but in in all of those, I want to show you three that talk about your signature in the book of life. I think this is a great encouragement to eternal security. The first one I want you to see is 17.8. So in Revelation 17.8, it's speaking about lost people, but you'll see ourselves there. Lost people whose names were not written because lost people's names are not written, and that tells you that saved people's names are, notice, written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. 
save people's names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And you say, how can that happen since I got saved and, you know, <laughs> at this date? The foreknowledge of God sees this. Now, we can argue about what that entails, but no one can deny that God knew before the world was ever created who would be saved. Of course, that's true. And those names, this verse says, are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Secondly, in chapter 3 and verse 5, it says this, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And so secondly, not only is your name there, but your name can't be blotted out. You can't be unsaved. Your name can't be blotted out of that book. And then I want you to see the third one in chapter 21 and, and verse 27, which pictures all of us in heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. And there shall in no wise enter in anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a law, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, and I would say forever. Here we are in heaven, and our name is still in the Lamb's book of life. Three striking statements, if you ask me, about the book of life in the book of Revelation. Our names are written before the foundation of the world. They cannot be blotted out, and they are written there forever when we get to heaven. I don't know what could be stronger to say, you have eternal security, folks. You, you have eternal life, and you can't lose it. A little book that's been passed around, and you, you have these, and, and uh, Pastor Matt gave me one by Gary Schmidt uh, called Done, right? It's just, he, of course, goes back to the word, it is finished on the cross, to telestai, when, when Christ said, it is finished. And he rightly defines it as paid in full. Your salvation is paid up. It is paid in full. You couldn't commit a sin that's not paid for. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paid in full to tell us die. And once he came to that place of his death, where he died for us, his blood has been shed, he's doing that as our substitute and in our place, your sins are paid in full. And there's no way that, it, that anything can be charged to you again. Past, present, future. All of your sins paid in full. I hope you know him as Savior. I hope that this helps you understand that. We want to transition from there tomorrow to assurance. And what about those times when we think, uh, we're not saved. What do we do about that? And how should we think about that? We'll talk about that in the morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for eternal life. Thank you for everlasting life. Thank you that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all have their part in our salvation. And because of that, it's paid in full. Because of that, our names can never be blotted out of the book of life. And so, Father, thank you for these great promises in the Word of God. We know that sometimes we can be confused, and we know that there are those who are confused about it. But, Father, help us to just trust your Word, that you have said it, and we believe it, and we take it that way. 
So, Father, I pray you would give us this security, too, as we talk about assurance of our salvation, that we would know this and be confident in it. And I pray it would help us all, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 679 is, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. 679, and we'll be dismissed to a time of fellowship after that. Trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the Trust him more. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. Right.